Welcome to the first Patreon-only episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you support me on Patreon, then you know that once a month I'm going to be doing solo episodes that are only available to people who support the podcast. And this is the first one. Uh, But because this is the first one, I'm going to leave at least part of this episode open to everyone, just so that people who are thinking of supporting the podcast have a sense of what these episodes are going to be like. So if you support the podcast, you'll get access to this entire episode. But if you don't, you'll get access to maybe half of it. But going forward, the episodes will only be available to people who support the podcast. And of course, you can do that by going to my Patreon page. So today I'm going to talk about the 1619 Project. And I'm going to read an essay that I wrote in response to it. The 1619 Project was created by New York Times Magazine, and it was a series of essays and poems and photos intended to, quote, reframe American history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at its center. And the project has inspired lots of pushback and lots of praise I believe some Democratic presidential candidate mentioned it during a debate. Yet at the same time, it's come under attack by historians, including some of the leading historians of slavery and the Civil War. The reason is because it had some very controversial arguments. I think the most controversial was the idea that one of the main reasons Americans revolted against the British is because they wanted to preserve slavery. And they feared that British rule would mean abolishing slavery in the near term. In other words, that one of the main reasons the U.S. exists is because of the desire to preserve slavery, which is not a mainstream claim about the American Revolution. That claim was made by Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is a journalist with the New York Times Magazine and a MacArthur Genius Grant winner. And she's someone who I've had some back and forths with on Twitter over the past two years or so. And we have lots of disagreements, but she has been especially active on Twitter, defending the project, you know, attacking its critics for being the wrong race. You know, in response to the 1776 project, which was a project I was a part of as a response to the 1619 project. She posted a picture of herself on Twitter with gold teeth in her mouth, saying something like, this is my response to the 1776 project. It was basically just like a hip hop style flex without any content whatsoever. And after a few days, she took this picture down, presumably because it was rather embarrassing as an award-winning journalist to respond to criticism of one's work with a picture of you just mean-mugging the world. So I'm going to read my essay, or most of my essay, responding to the 1619 Project and give some additional commentary outside the text. So here we go. It is often said that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Sound advice though this may be, it does not get one very far in practice. 
The reason is that there is no agent called history which teaches unambiguous moral lessons. Study World War II and you may come away believing that nation-building works. Study Iraq and you may come away believing the opposite. In the end, the historical episodes we choose to study and to ignore say less about the wisdom offered by history and more about the lessons that we consider relevant today. So as I read the New York Times 1619 Project, a series of essays intended to reframe American history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at its center, I kept returning to one question. Which episodes from American history teach lessons that are most relevant to black children today? The question is not merely of intellectual interest. The CEO of the Chicago public school system has pledged to send at least 200 copies of the project to every high school in the city. And outside the text now, the 6019 project has also infiltrated the school system of Buffalo, New York, and probably other school systems as well that I'm not aware of. So these essays are not textbooks. If you went to a decent school, the textbooks you had in class were reviewed by dozens and dozens of historians and took years to create and are continuously updated. The 1619 Project, you know, the maximum amount of time that people spent writing the essays in the project was a few months, and most of the people in the project were not historians at all. So it's the furthest thing from a textbook, and you can see that on every page of the project. Okay, back to the text. The essays in the project answer this question in one voice. Slavery. Brian Stevenson argues that slavery is behind the cruelty of our criminal justice system. Janine Interlandy says that slavery explains why America lacks universal health care. Matthew Desmond claims that slavery explains the brutality of American capitalism, and so forth. Okay, let me stop there briefly. The claim that slavery is behind the cruelty of our criminal justice system should strike you as on its face weak. Yes, it's true that, you know, the phrase mass incarceration is more than a fair characterization of the American prison system, just looking at the numbers. But the idea that slavery is the reason for that doesn't make sense just looking at the timeline of mass incarceration alone. Really, the earliest you can date the rise of mass incarceration is probably to the mid-1970s. And obviously that's over 100 years after slavery was abolished. So to imagine that slavery is the reason we have mass incarceration is to say that somehow the legacy of slavery remained dormant for over a century. And then 10 years after the civil rights movement awakened from its century-long slumber... I think Kamala Harris said during one debate that the criminal justice system was part of the legacy of slavery. And I thought that was particularly ironic because really the criminal justice system and mass incarceration is more a legacy of what people like Kamala Harris did than anything having to do with slavery. The relevant fact here being that Kamala Harris was a prosecutor in California in the 90s, I believe. And according to John Pfaff's book, Locked In, 
it was really prosecutors that drove the upswing in incarceration that led to what we now call mass incarceration. So people blaming it on the legacy of slavery, in a way they're passing the buck. And this is not to say that the prison system isn't messed up in you know, 10 or 20 different ways. But it's just to say that slavery is not at all the cause. Back to the text. I support teaching Americans of all ages about the horrors of slavery. Textbooks that whitewash this history, for example, by portraying slavery as a, quote, side issue in the Civil War, are a moral embarrassment. But the 1619 Project is not an honest attempt to educate Americans about our history. It is an attempt to weaponize that history to fight ideological wars in the present. There's no doubt that slavery is among the most important chapters in the American story. The 1619 Project exaggerates only slightly when it says that, quote, no aspect of the country has been untouched by the peculiar institution. Yet by claiming that slavery has touched everything, the project raises a question about its own prejudice. If slavery is linked to every aspect of America, why single out certain institutions and not others? So the point here is that if slavery has touched every part of America, then presumably the residue that people refer to when they use the phrase legacy of slavery is just as present on institutions and ideas loved by the left as it is by similar institutions on the right. So it's suspicious if you say slavery has touched everything, and then when asked to cash out what you mean by everything, you only list institutions that the left wants to reform, like the prison system and privatized health care and capitalism. And that's exactly what the project does. The point I'm making here is you could make all the same arguments, but selectively target institutions loved by the left. Two examples I give are labor market regulation, the fact that you have to get approved by the government to be, say, a dentist. The idea behind those laws is to protect consumers from unrestrained capitalism. And those laws are more or less popular on the left. They were also used in the late 19th century to essentially re-enslave black people by preventing them from taking anything more than menial jobs. So you could easily say, based on the same logic that is present in this project, that labor laws are part of the legacy of slavery. But of course, the 1619 Project would never make that argument because it's not an unbiased attempt to see which institutions have roots in slavery and which don't. It's an attempt to fight modern political battles by casting anything that conservatives or the right loves as associated with slavery. And that's a very powerful argumentative technique. If the thing you love has roots in slavery, then suddenly it becomes very difficult to defend it. And the people behind the 1619 Project know that. They're all for universal health care, so they want to paint privatized health care as associated with slavery. And in many cases, I agree with them on their policy prescriptions. I agree with most mainstream ideas for criminal justice reform. That doesn't mean that the criminal justice system is rooted in slavery. You could argue that attacks on free speech are rooted in white supremacy. You could argue that Planned Parenthood is rooted in white supremacy because one of its founders flirted with eugenics. You can make these arguments all day long. 
But the truth is, whether something was rooted in slavery or not has little or nothing to do with whether that institution is functional or in need of reform today. The crucial thing these arguments ignore is change over time. Later in the essay, I use the example of penicillin. The reason penicillin was mass-produced was because of World War II. Yet no one would take seriously the argument that penicillin or mass-produced antibiotics in general are rooted in global violence, or that you should picture the firebombing of Dresden or the atomic bomb landing on Hiroshima every time you get penicillin at the doctor. But these are the kinds of arguments that are being made in this project, and I'll give you one example. Matthew Desmond wrote one of the essays for the project, and in his essay he said, quote, When a mid-level manager spends an afternoon filling in rows and columns on an Excel spreadsheet, they are repeating business procedures whose roots twist back to slave labor camps. So the idea here is that Excel spreadsheets, those are rooted in slavery. And his rationale for this is that some slaveholders used rows and columns in order to tabulate the profits from slave labor. That's a kind of argument that if applied to any other historical event, like World War II and penicillin, you would simply laugh out of the room. That intellectual move is at the core of many of these essays. Okay, back to the text. 